I'm here with my co-host. Ryan Moses, the beer counselor and proprietor of Craft Beer Consulting, LLC. Ooh. We'll talk more about that Yeah, later. a little addendum at the end there. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely come back to that. Uh, Ryan, how you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm having an interesting... It's been an interesting week, but it's been a good week. Things are moving in my professional and personal life much quicker than I would have imagined six months ago, but... Uh, what, are, what are those commercials? Uh, life comes at you fast. It's yeah. amazing how accurate that is. Yeah, yeah got the microhuman on the way, and uh, we've uh, decided to paint the hallway and paint the uh, the nursery. You know, the pretty typical yeah. things that you do when you got a kid on the way. But you know, those vo uh, was vocs, voxs, whatever. Yeah, VOCs. yeah, the, yeah the, the 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 death fumes uh, <laughs> that are in paint. So I got to do all that. My wife's on a business trip to LA right now, so I'm painting like crazy. And it's like, oh God, please dry. Yeah, so doing a whole lot of painting. Aside from that, I'm getting ready for a trip to Rhode Island coming up next week, so I will be away, guys. Uh, yeah, just going to be working on with the in-laws, getting uh, them set up to move down here. They're being kind enough to come down here and uh, you know move to the Carolinas, a place they have no real connection to aside from us, and uh, you know basically give us free babysitting service. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's kind of the main draw, but that was extremely generous and, and thoughtful of them. Uh, we're also going to be doing our first baby shower up there, so please buy me free stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, the baby. I totally don't play with the mobile or anything. Yeah. Your tiny new roommate you'll be getting? Oh, yeah. No, she's <laughs> she's not going to contribute to the household at all. Yeah, doesn't do the dishes, doesn't buy toilet paper. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I can't wait. And we still, I mean, it's one of those things we got until August 1st is the projected due date. But, it, it man, it, we're, half, we're more than halfway through already, and it just flew by. So I'm yeah. starting to see what all of my friends with kids are saying. Like, no, 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 no. You, you, you cherish these moments when you got them. They're wonderful. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, and yeah, it's... All right, so moving on from the copious amounts of personal information (laughs) on to Brew News. What do you got, Ryan? Well, I have a couple things. Um, The first one is a blog post from Jeff Allworth, the Birvana blogger. Uh, He's one of my... (laughs) Actually, he's just one of my favorite writers. You've you've read a couple of his books. Um, Oh, crap. Just lost them into my head. Hold on, I'll get you. We, we've been over this. If we don't mispronounce the name of a book or something, then <laughs> ah. it, it's not a real show. Yeah, the main, the probably the one you know the most is the Bi- the beer Bible, and then he also the last one he did was the Secrets of Master Brewers. And he's a really good writer, really good blogger, and he lives in the Pacific Northwest, and that is kind of why his last um, post blog post is called Constructive Criticism Has Full Cell Lost Its Soul. Basically, it's about Full Sail Brewing, which is out of the Pacific Northwest, and they're a legacy brewer, one of the one of the first ones in the Pacific Northwest to really hit. And what are they? The 39th largest brewery in America right now. But they're again, they're one of those breweries that's in that betwixt and between where they're a large legacy brewer, so they have that built-in legacy. A lot of history there. Yeah, the built-in leg- legacy history where they have people who drink full sail and who've drank full sail for 20 years, and they'll keep drinking full sail, but they're not attracting new drinkers because they're just not sexy for the under 30 craft beer crowd. You keep trying to make fetch happen, it's <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah, and so basically what Jeff is his blog post is just, you know, the attempts that they've tried to appeal to that crowd and it's not working basically (laughs) it's pretty bluntly it's not working like his first example is they did a thing called the ipa paya 
I wow, that is a yeah, that's a reach. Yeah, <laughs> and basically he's like, it's he's and he drank it, and he's like, it's okay. Is this? And honestly, no, that's been kind of my assessment of most of their beer. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had anything bad yeah, from them. That's exactly the problem. There, never had okay. anything that exciting from them, and. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing this similar things happen with uh, breweries like Highland right here in North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the crunch that a lot of those, like you said, legacy breweries are, are feeling. Uh, Green Flash, enough said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is tough to kind of uh, straddle that line between being your dad's craft beer, which is unbelievable that we can even say that right yeah. now. Um, and, you know, they are. They're a classic Oregon brewery. Yeah. Problem is, Oregon's got a lot, a lot of, of freaking breweries, yeah. and a lot of them are turning out some absolutely stellar product. And yeah. if you can... If you can't differentiate yourself on, you know, marketing, on product, and, and, and the product itself is just kind of getting lost in the hubbub, kind of it becomes background noise. I mean, yeah, yeah. you're, you're going to see some uh, declines. And I think that's what all Worth's post is about is their, in their attempts to appeal to that group, the actual product is not top of mind. It's, you know, they named a beer IPA Paya. <laughs> I mean, that should tell uh, you no, right it's there. It's papaya. It's yeah. Apple's new product. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, that's what he's kind of what he's saying is, you know, you're trying to appeal to this group, but you're not, you're losing your focus and your core values in reaching out and not even reaching out, but pandering almost to this group. And you're trying to become something yeah. you're not, yeah, which exactly. is a tough position because yeah. what you are isn't working. what the industry needs yeah. either. Yeah. It's a tough position to be put in, and like you said, it's hard to make something sexy that just isn't. I mean, there's a if you're not from the South, the phrase "lipstick on a pig" might not mean anything <laughs> to you, but it's 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 apt. Yeah, you're, you're you're, and I I think that is a hard thing. You have to figure out how to be. You know, you are a legacy brewer, and figure out how to pivot to use that to do it authentically. Yeah, appeal to people in an authentic way instead of you know, like a dogfish. Yeah. Yeah, Dogfish exactly. has done an excellent job of it. They are still relevant. They're still sexy. Stone's yeah. another one. Yeah. Still relevant, still sexy, and they've done a great job of connecting their uh, age, their experience, and, and yeah. all those fond memories we all have of them from back in the day with a product that is still very modern. I mean, when Stone rolled out Ruination 2.0, you had a small subset of people who were furious that they yeah. got rid of the original Ruination, but they created this in my opinion, fantastic yeah. beer as a homage and a follow-up to one of the kind of foundational classics. Yeah. That's the right way to do things. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think Sierra Nevada has figured out a way to straddle that line is another one, and it's it's got to be more than just throwing mangoes or papayas or whatever in your IPAs. I'm freely going to acknowledge, and I'm going to go on record as saying this, I hate mango and beer. Yes. Ma- mango is my favorite fruit. I eat a ton ton of mango i was eating dried mango this morning on my way here <laughs> i hate mango and beer it reads boozy Pe- yeah. like almost invariably people stop doing it papaya yeah. is good i, I yeah. like papaya normally but that's not the answer that that's that's yeah, i think people not enough i think people think mango will give a citrusy taste but you're right it comes off as Harsh. overly sweet and yeah, boozy almost. Yeah, yeah. almost fusel and yeah uh <laughs> Yeah, I love the idea of rolling out a papaya IPA, but that's almost like a dad adding the word wiggity whack to his like you know <laughs> lexicon and being like I'm cool. Yeah, yeah. it's not gonna do it, dude. Like that's you're not the cool dad yet. 
Exactly. Uh, uh, so if you don't mind me cutting in with a uh, story just because it ties in okay. kind of what we're talking about, Pacific Northwest Legacy Brewery is having issues. Uh, Deschutes just yep. announced that they are going to be postponing the purchase of the land for their Roanoke, Virginia facility. It's going to be their East Coast facility. We've seen a lot of breweries uh, from the western half of the U.S. starting to come in, buy up facilities in Virginia, in Maryland, in North Carolina, and use those as kind of staging areas for what is the you know kind of the hottest frontier in beer right now which is really the east coast especially the southeast uh so they're not putting this on indefinite hold they do have a plan they're planning on purchasing the land at the end of may and this was mostly to avoid some performance-based incentives that they worked out with the city of roanoke so roanoke essentially said hey once you open this place we expect to see some initial gains initial progress made uh in order for us to give you tax tax breaks breaks that we're going to give you yeah yeah, yeah. So it's basically, you know, uh, if you reach these marks early on, then we'll give you these kind of incentives uh, to, to stay here and to do business here. Um, so them decide to postpone a little bit. It's it's not a huge issue. Uh, it's yeah. definitely not an encouraging sign, though, because it means yeah. that they didn't think they were going to be able to hit those incentives. Yeah, and they're also not, they're going to postpone the purchase of the land, and they're also going to scale back what they were going to build on the land. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely going to be a a smaller facility, a smaller concept. And uh, for a lot of people, they're they're thinking, okay, maybe they're just trying to learn from Green Green Flash's mistakes. (laughs) And I'm sure there's an element of that to it. But uh, in spite of what their uh, founder is saying, the big issue here is that uh, Deschutes is not in a great spot now themselves. Uh, Through 2017, their off-premise sales are down uh, a little over 5.5%. Uh, the first three months of 2018, they're down about 15%. That is a huge yeah. drop in the first three months of the year. Now, admittedly, that's the smallest segment of your year-to-year uh, total sales. So, you know, the grand scheme of things, I don't project them having a total 15% decline. But unless they can kind of right that ship, they don't need the extra capacity. Yeah. Being able to ship it will definitely help with the overhead. But the but, issue right now isn't their EBITDA. It's not their costs. Their issue right now is raw sales, and they're having a problem with that because they focus on uh, that geographic growth. Open a new market, see a huge bump, don't give enough support, yeah. declines, just open in a new market. It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Eventually, you run out of room to grow, <laughs> and now what are you doing? You're looking around uh, – looking around wondering oh hell where do we go exactly. from here yeah like you said it's the same thing like they're learning from green flash's mistake but maybe they're learning some from green flash's mistake because they made the same they made the same initial mistake green flash made and part of it and honestly part of the mistake is they opened their east coast brewery probably two years or started the proc work on their east coast brewery probably two years after they should have Keep in mind that this place isn't even supposed to open until 2021, yeah. and that's that's a ways off. Yeah. I mean, the craft beer industry could do literally anything there in that time yeah. I mean, because Sierra Nevada and Oscar Blues, they opened theirs, we're looking at, oh, like five to seven years yeah, or something it's, ago. It's been a minute. They, yeah. they, I mean, they were definitely uh, definitely forward-thinking yeah. on that. Like the, like the breweries that opened, the West Coast and Colorado breweries that opened in Asheville, they did it so early that it's that they've become institutions here in North Carolina and in Asheville that they're almost a part of 
they're not quite, but they're almost a part of the North Carolina beer. And I would say family. Sierra Nevada, yeah. especially, oh yeah, is like Sierra. Like people in North Carolina have it have embraced the hell out of Sierra Nevada. Yeah, they built Malt Disney in. <laughs> they really, really, really did. I mean, you want to see the benefits of having a, a huge, glorious tap room. I mean, even while Sierra Nevada sales have been dropping pretty much nationwide, North Carolina loves them. Yeah, yeah. I'm not mad about that. I I've almost never had a bad beer. From yeah, them. and I think they've like it's pretty. And the fun thing is they've embraced being in North Carolina. Like the Southern Gothic is only in North Carolina and South Carolina. We have the Keller Vice on tap right now yeah. in my work, which is another North Carolina yeah. exclusive. And you know, exclusives doesn't necessarily you know mean that they're a brand that is strongly associated with the area. They're not the only brand who's done something similar. Yeah. But the fact that they are willing to concentrate on those almost as core offerings for just this market yeah. shows a lot of dedication, shows a desire to really ingratiate themselves to the community. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's something that, and, and one of those funny things, I know there were some people from the distributor here who distributes the shoots. They went up to Roanoke for, uh, I guess, <coughs> to... I have no idea what they basically went up there going up to drink beer, but <laughs> I think it was ostensibly like legit, to, uh, yeah, I think it was reason. ostensibly to, oh, well, it was, Roanoke was also the Ballast Point people. That's who, I know who went with, oh, with right. the Carolina Premium, with the Carolina Premium dis- distribution folks, but yeah. I need to hook up with a wholesaler. I'd love to get sent places to drink beer. That's a pretty good, pretty yeah. good hookup. Yeah. And well, I got to go to a baseball game with the Ballast Point reps. Friday. Ooh, look at me. I'm Ryan. I get all the perks. Yeah, uh, that Constellation money. <laughs> <laughs> they got the money to spend, man. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, speaking of Sierra Nevada, I swear to God, I've seen them walk into a place, spend $400 on merchandise to sell $300 worth of beer. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, you get some of those larger breweries, and they throw that money around. I'm not even judging. I'm just saying. Oh. All right, what else you got for us, oh, Ryan? Yeah. Uh, next one is comes from Canada. Uh, Bandit Brewery just found out the hard way YYZ is already trademarked for beer. Well, Bandit <laughs> Brewery is a small, a smaller craft brewer in, uh, I think, Toronto. And Amsterdam Brewing Brewery is also a craft beer brewery in Toronto, but they're a lot larger. And apparently Amsterdam had already had a beer called the YYZ, and Bandit created their own YYZ. It's a Goza. And Amsterdam did not like it. And I wonder why. <laughs> so Amsterdam did what often happens when there's trademark disputes. They call it lawyers. And so, <laughs> and, I, and I cannot blame them in yeah. the least. And but a lot of what the article is about, it basically breaks down everything that happened. But what interested me is I got interested because of the writer or one of the writers, a Canadian beer writer, he tweeted about it. <laughs> and what I did like was his comment was craft brewers like to project this air of camaraderie and we're all in this together and we're all family and it's a it's a friendly competition and you know we don't we're not cutthroat and then something like this happens and you find out yeah no this is business oh hundred <laughs> percent oh, yeah <laughs> yeah Gordon Gecko would be proud exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, and it is. It's a very collaborative industry, but yeah. it is still an industry. And so yeah. when somebody – a lot of people are going to look at Amsterdam Brewing, I'm sure, and be like, look at them bullying these smaller guys. And that's – it. 
guys, the first shot was fired by what well, you said, Bandit is the yeah, yeah, Bandit, Bandit Brewing. Brewing like the, it, the first shot was fired by them not doing I don't know a basic <laughs> untap search. Okay, so I'm just gonna say because we've seen this without naming any uh, specific breweries, we've even seen this happen in Charlotte. Yeah, guys, before you put out a beer, how about you go ahead and just run an untap search? It takes you a quarter of a second, and you'll learn real quick if anybody's used the freaking name. Yeah, uh, it's unbelievable to me. Like this could have all been prevented if somebody abandoned brewing and just been like, oh yeah, maybe I should just check. Yeah, and if like it's one thing if you're a small brewery here in North Carolina and a, another small brewery in. Oregon has the same name of the beer. You and can, honestly, yeah. if you don't share distribution markets, they'll yeah. just shut down trademark court anyways. So yeah. it's it's yeah, that's not worth pursuing. But it's one thing. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, we it's definitely a case. <laughs> oh yeah, that, there's a story to dive into at a later date. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely one of those circumstances where if you're on opposite side of the country, no one's gonna care. But, but when if you're in the same city, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Yeah. And Toronto's got a thriving craft beer scene. Yeah. I mean, th- this isn't like you know an absolute undereducated market people will see yeah. that and i'm sure even some of the bandits customers were like guys you, you, you can't do that <laughs> yeah it's like you, really you did that you both really <laughs> okay <laughs> but yeah i mean it's i think that's kind of the thing that we talk about a lot is you know this is a business and it we need to talk about it as a business sometimes so yeah it's fun when, like we're talking we're talking about beer but there's a lot of money involved. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's People's not... People's livelihoods at stake. Yeah, like us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it can get very real very quick. And it's one of those things, like, collaboration is a wonderful thing. This is one of the most yeah. collaborative large businesses I've ever seen. Like, yeah, as far as the industry is concerned, it's wonderful. But at the end of the day, we have to keep in mind that they're collaborative competitors. It, it's yeah. cooperation, not just cooperation. Yeah. And when you make moves like that, you have to be cognizant of the effect that it's going to have out in the marketplace. Yeah. And in yeah, the collaborations exactly what if you're Amsterdam, you could you could solve this problem really quickly and just say, "All right, we'll do a collaboration. <coughs> we'll make a funny we'll make some kind of name that kind of play, Hashtag #our bad." Yeah. Makes a joke of what happened, but you know, beast, yeah. Just do that and it, it at least makes you look better. But you've also proved your point to the smaller breweries. Like, look, you can't bite our name. Yeah. <laughs> you just can't do that. Yeah. But but we'll work with you. We'll like do a collaboration. We'll make fun of it. We'll be happy, but don't do it again. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, seriously though, guys. No <laughs> exactly. Good dilly dilly. <laughs> Which, by the way, that is one of the best. What Bud Light did with the brewery. The brewery. Of the, yeah, that brewery is of Michigan. that is that is like picture perfect in how you're supposed to react yeah. to that. If you're Minnesota the big actually, I think yeah, that was like the classiest PR move. Like yeah. I hate giving InBev credit, <laughs> but when they sent that town crier, for those of you who aren't aware, like there is a brewery up in I think I believe it was Minnesota who wound up uh, using a the beer name Dilly Dilly, and yeah. rather than sending them just a generic cease and desist, uh, Budweiser sent a person in full Renaissance town crier getup to read this flowery purple prose Shakespearean uh, thing about how, you know, why they appreciate the respect of being paid to the king. Uh, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they cannot use that name anymore. And they give him two free Super Bowl tickets yeah. to boot. I mean, it was a classy, slick move. And yeah. boy, it just, it's a bug up my ass that <laughs> that, that was such a smart PR move. It yeah. was genius. Yeah. It's probably the best thing to ever happen at a small brewery, too. It got them oh, national yeah. news. Been, everybody benefited there. Yeah, exactly. All right. What other news do you have this week, sir? 
Well, hey, uh, Miller Coors, Stone, how you guys doing? Uh, so anybody who's been following uh, the recent lawsuit of Stone Brewing out of California against uh, Miller Coors has got to be a little bit aware, at least, of, of the back and forth that's been going on between those two respective companies. And we've talked about this story uh, in previous weeks. Basic idea to catch you guys back up. Uh, Keystone, uh, you know, the beer of choice for... Uh, working-class coal miners and college students everywhere uh, <laughs> has uh, definitely increased the size of the word stone in their marketing as well as on their cans. Uh, it has been very, very prominent on their recent can designs and in pretty much all the recent ad campaigns. Uh, stone Brewing understandably took a little bit of issue with this and filed suit, basically uh, pushing their existing trademark on stone in uh, as it relates to beer marketing and trying to get Miller Coors to, you know, get, cut that shit out. Yeah. Well, Miller Coors fired back, basically saying that they've been using the term stone to describe their beer going back, uh, you know, to the early 90s at least, and provided evidence to back it up. I'll yeah. give them full credit. They uh, they showed a lot of homework on the fact that they have been using that in their marketing since, I think, at least 1992. Yeah, uh, about right. Provided a whole lot of accessory BS in, in, their, <laughs> in their counterclaim, but they're actually filing countersuit, basically saying that Stone has uh, knowingly surrendered their claim to the trademark on stone by virtue of allowing no. Miller Coors to use the term stone in their marketing for too long. I think it's been about a decade since the uh, stone actually openly recognized the fact yeah. that it was being used in marketing. Uh, so really kind of complicated things and kind of put stone back on their uh, their back heel where yeah. they're now looking at a, at a countersuit that could cause them to lose even their claim on stone. <laughs> Uh, and recently, this last week, uh, Stone, Greg Cook specifically, who is the, co the founder and uh, head brewer of Stone, wound up uh, firing back and basically saying that, you know, no one treats Keystone as unsophisticatedly as Miller Coors, that they're an absolute joke, and that the case will continue forward as is. And that may all be true, but that does have has nothing to do with no your... No legal bearing <laughs> at all. Uh, so my general take on this whole story, if you actually break down, it's a long response by Miller Coors. It's like a 72-page yeah. response. Yes. Uh, there is a lot of fluff. There's a lot of BS, and there's a lot of posturing. But, but they have the legal rectitude in this. They have been using stone in their marketing since 1992. They have had it in continuous use since then. Yeah. Uh, stone is an accepted uh, alternative name for Keystone Beer. Greg don't have much to stand on right yeah. now, and uh, the countersuit will definitely get shot down. Stone is no way going to be able to get Stone Brewing to have to quit using an accepted yeah. trademark. Uh, they've already tried to press a trademark uh, argument against Stone Brewing in the past. It got shot down because of the existing yeah. trademark. So this is pretty well within the the legal precedent so far. I got a feeling this whole thing's just going to be a wash. Yeah. Stone's not going to get what they want. Miller Coors, they're mostly just doing this to make a point, so they're not going to get what they're requesting in the countersuit. So no relief for them, no gains for Stone, and it makes the craft industry just look like crap. It, it, yeah. it is making us look petty as hell. Uh, and while I respect the right of any company to defend their trademarks, they've been using it longer yeah. than you've existed. That's, yeah. that's really hard to argue that you have uh, sole proprietorship of the yeah. Stone name. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think Miller Coors is basically just, we have a lot of money, we're just going to slap you around for a while because you're anno basically you're just annoying us right now. Oh, yeah, they, they are a, a still a multi-million dollar company, but it's a multi-million dollar gnat attacking a multi-billion dollar yeah. juggernaut. Yeah, I yeah. get why they're irritated. Yeah, it's like, uh, please, just stop. We'll keep using stone, you'll keep using stone. 
no one really cares, honestly. Oh, yeah, and I, and I get the <laughs> argument that it'll cause some market confusion. It won't among beer geeks, but you'll have the, you know, yeah. a spouse or, you know, parent yeah. who's going, and they don't know the difference. They see stone in big letters. the same reason why Redbox has yeah. Transmorphers movies come out every time the uh, Transformers movies come out in theaters, because some little grandma's not going to know the difference, and she's going to pick it up. But... At the end of the day, I don't think it's going to hurt Stone that terribly bad, no. and, and this whole thing isn't hurting Miller Coors at all, so really, what are we open to accomplish? <laughs> Keystone is still terrible, terrible beer. Yes, it is. It's it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's, it's just, just not good. Not good. Uh, aside from that, I got an article from Chris Fernari on Brewbound. It's called Time Traveling, How Craft Beers Evolved Since 1990. Basically, this is just a look at some of the uh, rapid developments within the craft beer industry. It touches a little on the first craft beer revolution back in the 90s. Which, which I, would, I remember. I would. Dude, man, you are so old, right? <laughs> yeah. I say respectfully like, to like my I other. remember when uh, Keystone came out. Let's just put it that oh, way. Oh, my God. I was in college at that point. I I don't... I, I'm not sure that I had finished pissing in my pants yet. It's uh, Well, uh, elder statesman. Uh, <laughs> I would definitely like to do an entire episode at some point on the, uh, the first craft beer revolution because yeah. a lot of people in craft beer who work in the industry and have for years don't know anything yeah. about it, and it's hugely important to the history of the industry now. Yeah. But... Uh, more than that, it touches on kind of the era 2009 forward and how much has changed just in the modern craft beer era. I mean, craft beer really started to get going in 2004, but around 2009 is when the industry started really maturing and really starting to turn into a modern, serious business that was taken seriously by the big boys as well. Uh, and he does a little bit of diving into that. Uh, for example, he has some uh, interviews with Andy Thomas, who's the CEO of uh, Craft Brew Alliance, We've talked about CBA a decent amount on this show. They are an absolute cluster right now. They're they're a mess. So you'd think I wouldn't really take Andy Thomas's words that seriously. I think he might be the most overqualified person on the planet. He is working for a company that is an absolute free fall, aside from their Kona brand, but he always has some excellent, really insightful things to say yeah. about the state of the industry as a whole. Uh, so he's talking a little bit about the uh, consolidation of wholesalers. Uh, so in 1970, we had 4,000 beer wholesalers in the U.S., and that yeah. was to basically cover three brands, Miller, Bud, Coors. Yeah. It wasn't having to cover that and much. And remember, Coors didn't come across the Mississippi for until almost it's the brewed 80s. in the Rockies, buddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, by the way, that was the whole plot of Smokey and the Bandit, was them driving, across, driving from Georgia to Colorado to get Coors and drive it back. That was the whole point of the movie. That, that is the most depressing <laughs> plot I've ever heard in my life. You couldn't come up with any better reason to visit the Rocky Mountains than to get cores? Well, no, you well, need well, a hobby. They weren't even going to the Rockies. They were going to, I think they were going to like Texarkana, Texas. I don't even think people from Texas go to Texarkana, Texas. That's, oh my God, that's terrible. Uh, but anyways, we went from 4,000 distributors in uh, 1970 to only 650 today. Uh, that's a lot of consolidation. So a lot of that yeah. isn't necessarily individual wholesaling warehouses. It's wholesaling companies. companies yeah. Uh, and contrarily, you've seen the total number of SKUs and off-premise accounts, according to IRI, go from 5,900 in 2009 to more than 17,000 SKUs on the shelf of grocery stores, C-stores, etc., uh, that's a huge amount of growth in the complexity of the warehousing while you've had a lot fewer distributors around. This yeah. has created a bit of an issue where you have these the smaller number of wholesalers who are now having to represent a massively increased portfolio, including a lot more breweries under their header. Yeah. 
they cannot properly represent everybody no, that they, they have under contract, and it's not their fault. No one could. Yeah. Uh, not only that, they can't even properly represent all of the beers that are coming out from the brands that they have, even the ones that they're able to push the, the core products or the seasonal products yeah. from. So this creates this impossible situation where you might sign up with, for example, Jeffries out of uh, the Raleigh-Durham yeah. area, and they can keep you going all the way through the triad. They might even expand beyond there someday, consolidate and gain more and more uh, you know, wholesale regionality. That's great. It spreads you out geographically, but what are they actually doing for you? And Not it yet. creates this situation, yeah, where, where you are now having to compete in areas where you have smaller local brands that have that local bump who are far more well-known and better represented. And you are stuck in a portfolio with 45 other craft brands yeah. minimum. And when you get these larger and larger, more consolidated wholesalers, now you're in a larger portfolio because a lot of times they'll share portfolio across all of their geographic areas. Yeah. So you might be competing with 70 other breweries in your wholesaler's portfolio, and that's just, just with their your portfolio. Yeah. yeah, it's not counting <laughs> the other wholesalers. That's not counting the self-distributed breweries. Yeah. That's not counting wine and spirits. That's a lot of competition out to market, and you have no control over your own brand in that circumstance. Yeah. In a lot of states, you have no ability to dictate your own destiny. I think we've seen, I think in Charlotte, we've seen a few breweries who went with distributors three or four years ago starting to regret going with a distributor three or four years I, ago. I could name three or four off the top of my yeah, head just could, in yeah. Charlotte. It's a, and that's not to say that distributors are a bad thing by any stretch. When you yeah. exit your home market, they, they start to make a lot more sense economically, yeah. even for breweries that self-distribute in their home market. But it does make it something that you have to do a lot of research, and you really have to make sure you're being represented. And most importantly, you have to have people out in the field representing your brand yeah. for you. I think that's one mistake a lot of breweries make is they sign with a distributor and then they kind of push off their salespeople. They kind of like push them around or move them to different jobs. And that's, you know, that's not what you do because you still need to sell your beer. You're, I keep saying this, your distributor is a logistics company that delivers your beer. Yes. You need to sell your beer. <laughs> you need to be there making sure that you're well represented, making sure that the accounts even know you exist. Because yeah. I, I've literally walked into accounts. I started at the first brewery I worked at when I got to uh, North Carolina. I'm not going to name any names, but the distributor that they were with, they had been with for years. And I literally would walk into accounts who had no idea they even carried us. <laughs> and, and that's alarming. Yeah. That's absolutely alarming. And part of that's because they hadn't had a rep in the Charlotte area in yeah. quite some time. And that, that, that's an issue. Uh, and you, there's actually a quote here as well. You're seeing some frustration from some of the larger breweries, uh, going back to some of those legacy breweries, who are frustrated about the constant rotation on taps as well. They're they're starting to get frustrated with the fact that they can't keep permanent taps the way they could when craft beer was still a little on the younger side. A quote by Hugh Sisson, the founder of Heavy Seas, nothing pisses me off more than you sell, uh, sell retailers a keg and it's gone in two days and you're off. Hello, last I could tell, we were here to make money. And I understand what well, he's saying. Yeah, so are the freaking retailers. So are the freaking <laughs> retailers. And we, as craft beer drinkers, are an unbelievably fickle populace. Yeah. So even if your beer flew off the shelves, flew out of the taps that first time around, chances are the next keg they get in, if it's going on right after the first one, it's going to sit. Yeah. And anybody who has done beer buying at any major craft beer retailer knows that. Yeah. Uh, permanent taps don't work anymore. People no, love a beer. But once they've had it, they've had they're it. done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they've had they've had it. The check the checkbox is checked and they're yeah, done. Literally, they've can... gone to untapped, had that beer. Oh yeah, yeah. They've they marked it. it off. It's Pokemon. They got to catch them all. And, and <laughs> they, sorry, but they've had a Pikachu before. Yeah. 
So I understand the frustration, and, and we can argue until we're blue in the face on whether or not that's a good thing or whether or not that re- reflects a true respect for beer or craft beer or what craft beer should be about, but it is what craft beer is about. Yeah. And so you have to understand that reality, and you have to provide those innovations, and you have to provide those options, and you have to constantly earn every tap that you're on. And that's one of the big struggles that you see some of these larger breweries undergoing they relied so heavily on outside distribution rather than core and taproom distribution i mean heavy seas their taproom was about the size of our podcast studio <laughs> up until i think this last year oh great divides up until they built the new one the same thing in colorado yep. you went into their taproom i remember the first time i was like i had great divide is great and i went into the taproom i'm like is it <laughs> where am I going to sit? There's like 50 people in here, and we're all standing against the wall. Yeah, we're all kind of pressed in there, and all I came in here for was my freaking Claymore. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that, it's it's a huge problem, It's but it's you know it's a highly innovative industry. It's yeah. what built craft beer. Yeah. It, it was no different back in the day when they took the idea that beer doesn't have to taste bad, uh, <laughs> in, innovated on that, and, and proceeded to, to push innovation on there. And the problem is yeah. they're getting left behind, and they're not continuing to innovate. That's yeah. something they really got to put that focus on. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the same thing we talked about with full sale. You like you're caught, lit, you're caught existing in on your legacy, but your legacy is not helping you grow, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it's, it might be time to uh, you know slash and burn. It's it's unfortunate, yeah. but it, it's sometimes the right thing to do. Just don't go with a, an H inside of a compass. <laughs> I love you guys at Highland. I <laughs> uh, got another article this time from Good Beer Hunting. This is Adaptation and Natural Selection, Brewery Guild Splinter and Regroup as an Industry Evolved. Uh, the basic idea behind this article, which is uh, by Brian Roth. We've had him on the show before. Yeah. It's uh, covering the idea that you have a lot of these regional. So the basic makeup of uh, industry groups within craft beer is you have the Brewers Association at the top. It's the national representative trade uh, organization, kind of represents the industry of craft beer as a whole, or the uh, interests of craft beer as a whole. Then you have state-by-state brewers guilds. So you have the uh, North Carolina Brewers Guild, the Rhode Island Brewers Guild, Colorado Brewers Guild, and that's existed about since the 90s. Uh, Some of those have formed a little more recently as their states have begun to develop more and more breweries problem is we're starting to see so many breweries and more importantly we're starting to see such a discrepancy in the size of some of these crap breweries that the interests of the larger end and the interests of the smaller end or sometimes even more specifically the interest of a brewery for example in raleigh durham is not the same as the interests of a brewery in Asheville, which is not the same as the interests of a brewery in charlotte we've seen this happen within our own state just to use that as an example and you're seeing it happen in other states and he points out a couple of recent examples Colorado's Brewers Guild, after Breckenridge <laughs> got bought by ABI, they wound up uh, splitting into two. They had a damn civil, civil war. Oh, it was an absolute other. civil war. And, and what they were asking was pretty basic. Uh, Breckenridge Brewing had a spot on the board of directors of this Brewers Guild. Yep. They got bought out by Anheuser-Busch, <laughs> and the, a lot of the members of the Brewers Guild weren't cool with them keeping that board spot. Yeah. Seems pretty reasonable. Uh, so they wound up working that out, and they've since uh, reunified. But, uh, you know, New Jersey just wound up splitting yeah. their state uh, brewers guild into two. And a lot of people are starting to cry this as, oh, no, is, is craft splintering? Is craft falling apart? This isn't new in most industries. Yeah. If you look at wine, they have something similar. They have Wine America, which is kind of uh, at the top and kind of administers the industry as well. It's their equivalent of the BA. And then they have these, uh, these degrees of granularity. Yeah. A lot of them have state organizations, sure, 
but they also have city oriented organizations or at least regional or yeah. uh, aimed uh, organizations you see something similar in spirits uh, cider actually follows a lot more of that model as well where you have these smaller uh, smaller groups that focus on the in- on places that have similar interests because they are of similar size and within similar geographic confines yeah that's not a bad thing and in the ar- the article kind of argues that maybe we need to accept that this is the natural evolution yeah. of brewers guilds in america and maybe that's going to be a good thing for beer as a whole I and mean, i think even in north carolina you already see that there is an there are there's the North Carolina Brewers Guild, but then there are also smaller associations in the, like the different pockets, like the Asheville uh, Brewers Association, the CIBA, C- yeah, right here in Charlotte that was just yeah. founded. Yeah, and, uh, then and I think there's a, something similar in Durham and Raleigh. I'm not sure. I have to go look, but I think there is. Yeah, so these yeah. are better able to represent the specific interests yeah. of those areas, and even within those cities, we were talking before that the interests of the largest breweries within those cities isn't necessarily the same as the smallest breweries. And that's not to say any of them are wrong. Yeah. But they have different needs. Yeah. If you're putting out 15,000 barrels a year, you have different needs and wants than the brewery that's putting out three. (laughs) (laughs) I believe they call that homebrew. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not 3,000 barrels, not three barrels, but yeah. Yeah, you have a lot. (laughs) Yes. Yes, your needs are a lot different than the guy who's putting out three barrels a year. Trust yeah, me. just just a little bit. Yeah, no. For example, um, his brewery is his garage. <laughs> when his wife is out of town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, I need a brew this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, his uh, tap room is his kitchen. Uh, yeah, so there's definitely some different needs, and I think uh, Brian did an excellent job of kind of breaking down those differing needs and, and why this isn't necessarily a bad thing in the whole. And it's not necessarily a sign that the sky is falling. I did yeah. a whole series of articles for my blog about why so much of this, you know, chicken little attitude people have about the craft beer industry. It's like, guys, we need to take a step back and realize yeah. a lot of this is just maturation yeah. that has happened in literally every other industry. It's I think like, everybody oh, got used to the insane growth and like, oh, this is how this is how industries grow. It's like, no. Yeah, you don't have 15% growth year over year. You don't go from 5% to 25% of total dollar sales over the course of less than a decade. That's not normal. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's unbelievable. Like, people, it's it's this sense of myopia yeah. when it comes to the craft beer industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last but not least, I got a article from Project Nosh. Uh, they basically focus on small batch health foods, uh, you know, to, you know, outside the main food market kind of foods and projects. They have this article by Megan McGinnis. It's capitalizing on crafts. CPG cashes in on beer success. CPG is uh, consumer packaged goods. Uh, it's basically just covering how retail-oriented foods, especially the smaller, more craft-oriented foods, uh, have been pairing over the last few years with craft breweries because there's an enormous amount of crossover between their two markets. I mean, yeah, 71% Cheese of, and chocolate. You yeah. see a lot of cheese and chocolate pairing events now. I think that's sounding a lot more like your typical consumption <laughs> patterns than anything, right? Actually, no, that sounds a lot more like my <laughs> typical consumption patterns. But, uh, you know, 71% of craft beer buyers, they buy beer with the aim of complementing it with their food, which yeah. is a actually startlingly high statistic. Yeah. And obviously that relies on self-reporting and pairing and IPA with your ice cream isn't exactly top-notch Cicerone yeah, level. Or, yeah, or, food yeah, I'm buying pizza. I need to get beer with that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not quite the same thing, <laughs> yeah. but it's still, the idea that they're cognizant of it and they're really yeah. focusing on making that effort says a lot. Yeah. And for marketing purposes, it says everything you need to know. Uh, and 
when you like look at it, food has been kind of one of it, food and beer are both part of this local war movement that we covered in yeah. our previous episode. This idea of eating more local, of uh, eating more artisanally crafted goods, and some cross promotion is not only inevitable; it, it's extremely healthy. Yeah. Uh, craft beer, she makes the point, has been an excellent test market and test industry for what food can do. Because as weird as it is to say, craft beer is really shown this proof positive. It's been the fastest growing, fastest moving segment of the local lore culture, of these changes that are happening on a greater societal basis, and to be able to see it not only working, but being wildly successful, takes a lot of these smaller food companies, you know, yeah. craft pickling companies, you know, craft granola bar companies, craft cereals, you know, like all of the, not to be confused with craft cheese, whole different thing. But <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, I'm already dipping into the dad jokes, and I'm not even a dad yet uh but (laughs) it talks about how uh how food can learn a lot from the craft beer industry and how they can work together to help cross promote it also made a point uh by using dogfish head as an example so dogfish head made a line of craft pickles you know going back you know as as weird as that is for a uh you know that's kind of like an out of nowhere kind of thing for them to do you think about it's all fermentation and you know it's a classic bar food classic pub food pickles yeah didn't work. They had a real hard time selling it, and it wasn't showing any proof positive out in the marketplace. And part of the issue they found is that when you market a food using beer-related marketing, you aren't expanding the demographic you're reaching. Uh, you're restricting it to just beer drinkers yeah. who like food. You're not capturing both food food lovers and, and beer, beer drinkers. drinkers. Yeah. And it's, it's what I call the sour IPA problem. Sours and IPAs are both hugely popular right now. I mean, if you've walked into any freaking craft beer bar, you're going to see that. IPAs are, are everywhere. Sours are extremely fast rising. Yeah. So someone was like, you know what? Genius. This, if yeah. I want to capture all of this, I'll make a sour IPA. Didn't work. Didn't work. Uh, and that isn't speaking to the beer itself. It's just speaking to out in the marketplace. Yeah. You have not opened up both the sour drinkers and the IPA drinkers. You've captured only the people who like both. Yeah. You, you've artificially restricted your reach. And that's similar to what you get there. So what they found is that breweries who partner with existing food vendors and food suppliers to, you know, cross promote, sell food products out of the brew house, sell beer inside of, you know, like small artisanal food shops at farmer's markets. That's the best way to do it. You know, keep them separate but focus on the same consumers and you're able to capture everybody that way. So it's just a fantastic article and definitely worth looking up. Yeah. All right. So uh, those of you who tune in the show on the regular probably noticed that we haven't introduced a guest this week. Uh, and it's not just because both of us were too lazy to reach out to anybody about being on the show. Uh, yeah. So we've both had some pretty big weeks and some pretty big, you know, recent happenings. So yeah. we decided to kind of play catch up with you as our listeners. It's been a while since we've really talked about what's going on in our lives and really uh, kind of where we come from and where we're kind of going professionally uh not really since episode one and i know a lot of you have kind of picked up since then yeah so we kind of like to do an interview the creators segment yeah. that's why the start of this year was kind of weird first of all we were i was a little bit late and yeah so and then we delved into you know, kind of dive right stuff. in yeah, yeah you gotta go right into <laughs> you're right into the personal and professional i don't know what you're talking about it wasn't weird it's delightful <laughs> So uh, as of this last week, I got some pretty good news. Yep. Uh, yeah, I am officially a certified Cicerone. Uh, kind of made my day. I think it was last Tuesday I got <laughs> yeah. the email. Uh, you know, they get six weeks once you finish the test to go ahead and give you the results. And, of course, they 
uh, missed the six-week deadline by about two days. They they had left. And people started freaking out. I, trust me, I know. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting there. I called him up, and she's like, give us the six weeks. And I was like, okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of the culmination of basically my entire career in beer so far. Yep. Kind of getting that certification. I, I know, you know, Ryan, you're going to have yours by the end of the year. I mean, this yeah, is... hopefully by... Take it in beginning of June, so hopefully by August I'll have it. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's it's a it's a big thing. So people at home who aren't necessarily as familiar with the Cicerone program, yeah, uh, can you describe a little to them what it is and you know kind of kind of the the yeah. gist of, of what it represents for people who hear it and they're like, you mean Chicharone? No, no, we do not mean Chicharones. <laughs> the Cicerone program is kind of based on. Same concept as a wine sommelier. Uh, Ray Daniels, the guy who started the Cicerone program, he wanted people... He loves craft beer. <coughs> and one of the things he wanted was, you know, to be able... For people who work in the service industry, to be able to educate and talk to customers about craft beer and to make sure that their craft beer experience was good. And so the program... There are actually four levels of it. One is the certified beer server. That's just your basic, you know, how to pour a beer, you know, your basic ideas of what styles are. And then the next level is the Cicerone, which we're, which you've passed and which, uh, which uh, hopefully on, by August I'll have passed. And the next level is the advanced Cicerone, which is actually the newest level. And then the top level is the master Cicerone, which I don't even want to talk about the master Cicerone. That's I think 13 in the whole world. Uh, yeah. yeah, that is just stupid. Yeah, and like I've like, and I've heard how the test goes, and it's like something what three, two, three days of you just sitting in front of literally like Ray Daniels and Randy Mosher, who wrote the book that you will study for most of your Cicerone test, and then like Garrett Oliver, like just it's it's an obscene <laughs> amount of just and there's no yeah there's no writing, it's all oral. It's basically like getting your PhD where you're just sitting in front of a panel of experts and giving your oral presentation, and they just pepper you and. You hope to survive. <laughs> and, and given that there's, uh, you know, many people take that test every year and only 13 in the world, yeah. that says a little something. And to speak to that, the actual Cicerone itself, uh, the Cicerone test itself for level two, which is what I just passed, yeah. actually has a lower pass rate than the bar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's only got a, uh, a little under a 50% pass rate. The bar has about 80% pass rate. Uh, so let me describe the test to you guys a little, just to give you a rough idea, because we, we would love to you know encourage more people. Yeah. Take this test. It's a wonderful thing. Whether you work in beer or you just want to be able to, to have that sense of accomplishment for having uh, demonstrated a level of knowledge and learning about the subject of beer, we, we love this program, obviously, the fact that we've both gone out yeah. for it, and we really want to encourage more people to. So let me give you an idea of what you would have to look forward to. So the test is about five hours long. This consists of uh, 150 uh, short answer questions, a handful of matching and uh, multiple choice uh, in there, but by and large, 150 short answer questions. That's yeah. followed up with a short essay about food pairing. So essentially, they give you a dish and you have to pair a beer with it. Mm, yeah. uh, Just so, to... for example, I had you know cassoulet, which is a French bean stew. Which I... de garde. 
yeah, to- totally ever heard of. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I paired it with Beer to Guard, sure enough. Which uh, the funny thing on that is, you have to provide a commercial example of the the beer style Sugar that you Creek suggest. Beer to guard? Oh, you, you want to know what asshole was sitting in Sugar Creek Brewery taking this test and freaking forgot? Oh, I did that the same thing. Beer to Guard that I've had dozens of times. I managed to remember it like and, and get it in there, but I had to go back and add that in. I was like, oh yeah, shit. No, I walked out of the test and getting in my car, and I'm like, damn, I couldn't come up from Beer to Guard. And I look at the sign, and I'm like. Jesus Christ. And they have a fantastic <laughs> beer to guard. I've had it dozens of times. I, it's one of my favorite beers in the city, and sure enough. Uh, <laughs> and that's uh, that's part of, you know, we'll come back to, you know, kind of some of the, the foibles and pitfalls yeah. uh, that people, myself included, fall into on the test. But after that, you have three full-length essays. <laughs> I don't even remember what two of them were about. <laughs> I know they always ask one of them, they give you a style, and you have to provide the yeah. history and details on the style. So you got to cover the, uh, you know, alcohol content, uh, yeah. flavor profile, what you can look at for it, the, the process of making it. I got double IPA, which wasn't so terribly bad. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's a, a you know, a, not a beer geek necessarily, but a full-out beer nerd will at least have some cognizance of Vinny Slerzo and, yeah. uh, you know, Pliny and, and that whole history of introducing double IPAs to the world. Um but the other two, I, I literally, I can't for the life of me. They were probably they there's were usually one that is about the brewing process. I am sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's always the history, then there's a brewing process, and then there's one I can't remember what. Those are the only two that I always remember. But the other one is usually just like a another like food and beer thing that they just throw in to screw with your mind again. Oh, of course, it'd be way too easy otherwise. Yeah, the whole test sounds so simple up till now. <laughs> Uh, you can't see me rolling your eyes, but it, it's happening. Uh, and then after that, you have a, uh, a video demonstration portion. Uh, and they say that it can be on any topic, and they even do this whole mystery thing where they fold a piece of paper yeah. and give it to you once you finish your written test. 98% of the time, it's... I've I, literally never heard of it not being It's there. a tap faucet. That's yeah. 98% so you have to take a, a basic American rear venting tap faucet, dismantle it, show all the pieces, show how you would clean them all out, and then reassemble it, which... Yeah. It, it sounds, sounds more easy. complicated than it is. Now, it, well, it's, that's the thing. It's it's very simple until you're in front of a camera <laughs> and you spent four hours with your brain turning to mush. Uh, and then yeah. it's borderline impossible. <laughs> yeah, so once you get uh, done doing that and, you know, you're thoroughly and utterly put through the ringer and hating everything about your life. Hopefully you get a break. Hopefully you've finished in time to, like, take 30 minutes to, like, decompress a little yeah, bit. Yeah, get some fresh air, decompress, walk around. Now you have the 12-part tasting portion. <laughs> Yay! You'll never hate drinking beer so much. Uh, so the, it's basically broken down into three sections of four questions each. The first section, they give you five beers. So one of them is a control beer. That's usually Amstel Light. I've also seen them use Coors Light. I've seen them use Sam Adams Light on my yeah, second uh, heard, tasting yeah. attempt. Was that... It's Am- usually it's Amstel or Sam Adams Light is what I've been told. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you know, basically something that's light enough to allow you to still you know, have a fair chance of picking things up in the background. Fizzy yellow water. Fizzy yellow water, pretty much. Uh, so four of these additional beers are also set in front of you. One of them is the same as the control beer, and the other three are spiked with uh, an off-flavor compound. So to yeah. give you an idea of what off-flavors are, essentially these are things that can happen in the brewing process that create flavors that aren't supposed to be there. Yeah. For example, there's uh, diacetyl, and, and you think of movie uh, movie butter popcorn. It's the same chemical they use to make yeah. uh, the butter flavor in movie theater butter popcorn. So it's kind of butterscotchy. It kind can be slick. buttery, a little slick feeling yeah. in the mouth. Not something you really want in beer. But in the amounts that they put in these samples, it is tiny. So you're having to basically sift through all this sensory data to try and figure out why my beer tastes like crap. Yeah. 
And uh, you also have to figure out which of those beers isn't spiked at all, which it sounds simple to just compare the two, but boy, you can get in your own head about that. And, 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 and think about it. If you're drinking like an Amstel Light or something like that, you're going to have DMS naturally just because... Oh, that's what killed me when yeah. they used Coors Light in the first off-flavor yeah, course that I took out in Nashville. And I was like, dude, it's made with corn. You're yeah. killing me here. Because <laughs> yeah, normally, like, mass-produced Pilsners always have just naturally a slight amount of DMS. To give you a, a hint of why this is frustrating, DMS is basically the smell of cream corn. It's one of the off-flavors you're tested yeah. on. So it'd be like uh, uh, trying to pick out cumin in an Indian dish. Well, it's freaking everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a... That's actually what screwed me up. My, I, the control, I knew what, figured out what the control was, had the control. Then one of the beers, <coughs> the last time I took the tasting, it had DMS in it. I was like, it's, I got like, I think I had like, couldn't figure out which one was the same as the control because I had four. One had like, I think I had, one had DMS, one had diacetyl. And one was like a... SL probably? Yeah, something like that. And like, one was like the cardboard taste. Yeah. yeah. Just, so, all sorts of fun. And so I'm like looking. I don't have. A, I don't have. I got four. I've got four spiked drinks. And I'm like no, <laughs> no. One of them is. One of them tastes like the control. I'm like, well, it's. And you will get in your own head. That's uh, like <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to illustrate that right now. By far the biggest issue with this test is overthinking. Yeah, that's that, yeah. That is by far the biggest thing that screwed me up throughout the test. Is, is yeah. you get in your own head to the point where you're looking at it and you're like, did they screw up and give me? You know, like you said, four spike samples. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, all of these taste the same. What is going on? What is this? What is that? Before you know it, you're starting to spiral out of control. And yeah. that's why I tell people, you know, I, I wrote an article on, on my blog about, you know, my experience taking the test. And the first thing I recommend is just you're, you've been studying probably for about a year at least for this. Yeah. You know this. Let your palate, let your brain do the work. Stop, yeah. stop overthinking it you're only going to psych yourself out yeah and pretty much what i'm going to start doing is doing blind flights at craft and at different places and just trying to guess what the beers are just because that's going to be the best way to like get your palate and the off flavors i think uh i think it's trying distributing they are doing a class for their sales reps to send through the Cicerone program. So I think I'm going to get in contact with them to see when they're doing their next off-flavor tasting and just And it makes jump a in. huge difference. Yeah. And honestly, like one of the best things I did, I was lucky enough, so uh, Kit Burkholder, he's a Cicerone, he's uh, my, my boss at work. He was kind enough to set up, like you said, some blind flights for me of, of similarly related styles. Yeah. But for example, a Blondale and a Kolsch and, uh, you know, Pilsner and yeah. You know, uh, he set those up side by side and gave me the opportunity to taste them all against each other without telling me what they were or even what the styles were and yeah. just giving me those small notes of, you know, you see how the finish lingers a bit. It's probably an ale. If it yeah. finishes off very dry and very crisp, it's probably it's a, a lager. lager. If you have something that has that slight fruitiness but you're not willing to commit to it being an ale, it's probably a Kolsch, yeah. uh, which was immensely helpful when I finally yeah. actually got to the test. Um, but moving on, like it, that kind of speaks to the second portion of the tasting exam as well, where they give you a beer, they give you uh, two styles to pick from, and you just have to decide which it is. Sounds simple. Oh, no, 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 it's not simple. No, this, this was the one that would screw me up by far the worst, because you get these styles that are so, so close. So you think you know the difference between a Belgian double and a Scotch ale, do you? <laughs> it's all fun and games until you get there and realize that they're almost freaking identical. Yeah. And you never think of it that way because they're marketed different, because, yeah. you know, uh, some of the commercial examples can be pretty far apart, but the 
edges of each style can come so yeah. close to overlapping that it is very easy to screw those up. Like the one that really messed me up the first time I took the tasting exam, I had to choose between a blonde ale and a cream ale. Oh, so I'm just going to tell you something for those of you at home who aren't up on your BJCP guidelines. Cream Ale's description is the longest of any beer yeah. description in the entire handbook of styles, uh, mostly because it could literally mean anything. anything. Yeah. It could actually mean a blonde ale. So yeah. that one was just an absolute mess. Oh, my favorite was one of the tests, one of the tastings I got, two brown beers. Is it an English porter or is it an American porter? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Basically, it's you hope when you take this. The main difference is the American porter will be slightly higher in ABV and slightly more hoppy. Slightly, and it's hoppier. not and it's not going to be that much more hoppier. It's going to be just slightly more hoppier. And we've talked on this show about the fact that most American versions of English styles have actually reverted back yes. to the English interpretation. That's the problem, is even it? though yeah. they're not marketed that way. And that's the other problem, I think whatever the american version was it, it's one that's pretty close to it's still slightly hoppier so it's still an american version but the brewery they use like tends towards the more english style porter yeah that, those those are it's it's brutal for, for yeah. me that was by far the toughest part um so once you've managed to survive that by survive i mean absolutely panic and, and shit the bed uh, the third part, uh, which is the most heavily weighted, and I guess theoretically it is it's the, the most hardest. Important. Yeah. It's the most important. It's, it's theoretically for, yeah. the hardest. They give you four beers, and they tell you what the beer is. They're kind enough to tell you what yeah. the beer is. They tell you what the style is. They even tell you if it's in draft or in a bottle. Yep. Now you have to decide if it's fit to serve. And not only that, you have to if it's not fit to serve. Well, why is it not fit to serve, Why Aaron? is it not fit to serve? You want to drive yourself mad? Because th this isn't one of those cases where, of course, they're all not fit to serve, and you no. have to go ahead and just figure out why. No, that would be easy. Two of them, at least, are perfectly fine. Yeah. And now you're starting to spin the tires on, is there this tiny, tiny amount of DMS that would be That's considered exactly, off? Yeah. Is if there this is a Pilsner, it's going to have DMS. Yeah, <laughs> and you have to keep taking into account the style. Are some of those things acceptable? For yeah. example, a lot of English beers, a little bit of diacetyl is perfectly yeah. fine. In uh, continental lagers or, or traditional pil European Pilsners, a little bit of DMS is yeah. fine. And to be, you start to spin your tires so quick, and you have to take into account, is this draft? Is this a bottle? What am I looking for? Am I looking yeah. for skunking? Um, which, God, I hope it's skunking. That's by far the easiest one to pick up on. Uh, or oxidation. Like, I'm anosmic yeah. to oxidation. So, which, ah. uh, for those of you who don't know that term, essentially means I'm nose blind to it. Yeah. I, I can't pick it up. Uh which makes it real hard because that's one of the few that's on both sections yeah. of the tasting portion. Uh, so, yeah, at that point, you're you're looking for just those slight amounts, and, and I'm I'm just looking to detect anything that can give me a hint of whether or not yeah. that thing is oxidized. That gives it a nice cardboardy uh, sort of stale yeah. flavor um, in large amounts, which I can pick up. It starts trending more towards sherry, sure. but yeah. that takes a couple of years at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you'll you'll start spinning out on that, and you'll start uh, overthinking it, and that's by far the most heavily weighted and really the hardest part of the test. So th this, I hope, gives you a, an idea yeah. of just how agonizingly frustrating this damn test is. Yeah. Oh, so when are you going to start reading your books on water and malt <sighs> so you can take the advanced test? 
Well, first, all right, so so going into my next steps and what I got <laughs> next planned, uh, next up I'm going to be getting my uh, Certified Cider Professional status, CCP. Uh, that's administered through the U.S. Association of Cider Makers. It's kind of the Brewers Association, but for the cider industry. Admittedly, a much smaller and less developed industry, uh, and it's that's part of why I've been so fascinated in pursuing that, is you're seeing the seeds of where craft beer started within this industry yeah. is growing up right alongside of it. And not only that, it's also an excellent bridge industry between wine and beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it manages to share a lot of qualities with both of them. Uh, and considering at some point I want to pursue my SOM, uh, it's it's kind of an excellent opportunity for me to kind of lead into that, use what I know from beer to kind of put the training wheels on, learn about cider, and go from there. So I've yeah. been reading, uh, so Tasting Beer by Randy Mosher is kind of the golden textbook for the Cicerone program, kind of the golden textbook, in my opinion, for beer. Yeah. It's just a wonderfully written, easy-to-read uh, guide to beer. I, I make the point that Randy Mosher is just an amazing beer communicator, much in the same way that Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson are excellent science communicators. Yeah. They're great scientists, but more than that, their ability to communicate those ideas in an accessible fashion yeah. is, is something definitely to be envied. Uh, Randy Mosher does that for beer. Well, Tasting Cider by Aaron James, she's the editor-in-chief of Cidercraft Magazine. It's the only print publication uh, for cider in America. Uh, she put out Tasting Cider. It's a book that very much follows Randy Mosher's kind of model and is doing a very similar thing, and I've been reading through that. It's been a fascinating yeah. journey. But after that, I'll start looking towards some. I'll start looking towards Advanced Cicerone and get right back to hating my life. Oh, well, I'm just actually, because I was on the page, on the uh, page of Jeff Allworth, his blog, apparently he has a cider book too. Is Cider Made Simple. By Jeff Allworth. I think I think I gotta add that to the read list. <laughs> hey, thanks for giving me more to read. Way to go, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm equally as interested in cider. Like a lot of beer people go, why do you like cider? It's it's well, it's first of all, it's good. <laughs> yeah, right. let, let, let's start there. And actually, yeah. that's another one I definitely want to do a full episode on yeah. as a cider industry. We could definitely yeah. get yeah, we know, can get yeah any heard, of the yeah. local cideries we would love to have on. But, so yeah. if you guys are listening, the cider is is equally as, as complex like wine is and where you have the sweet to dry range which is really fascinating and just seeing the thing that I've noticed is since we've been open at craft seeing people go from we still get a lot of the people who come in and ask for cider and they're looking for angry orchard but we're starting to get more people who are coming in and they want the more the drier more traditional tr- yeah more traditional ciders there's still that Still doesn't sell as well as our sweeter stuff, but it's starting to. But it's over the last, there especially years, picked up. Yeah, and that's the thing about cider is, you know, beer is the most versatile beverage in the world, and part of that is it, yeah. it is a beverage that at minimum has four ingredients. That, that's yeah. that's significant. You don't really yeah. think of how many potential iterations you get, and the kilning process on malt means that malt is an extremely wide ingredient to boot. It, it, yeah. It's it's not just one thing. It gives an enormous amount of variation. Uh, cider is a lot more like wine. You have really yeah. two ingredients. Uh, I guess, yeah, well, yeah, it's basically yeast and the juice itself. Yeah. It is a very simple product. It gives you less variation, but it is amazing how much terroir, how much the, the varieties themselves can really make a huge difference. In, using in different yeast. I found out using, if you use champagne yeast versus using beer yeast, different. it's a huge difference in the taste of the beer. And one of cider. my favorite types of ciders is, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, Basque Country French ciders. Yeah. Uh, so, and you're starting to see those creep up into Brittany as well. So it's like very traditional ciders that use just the yeast. 
from the actual apple itself so it's a lot of wild yeast and you get these beautiful rich funky ciders that are just incredible like a lebrun dry it's just one of my absolute favorite things and that's even a fairly run-of-the-mill bass country cider and there's it the point is it's a much wider scope than most people realize and i don't realize how we got this deep into cider (laughs) but but yeah we'll definitely be doing a cider episode coming up and that's kind of my next step this doesn't mean i won't still love beard love is multiplied not divided i got that from sister wives but i'm using it right now Uh, don't don't ask about my tv viewing habits (laughs) i've seen one i've seen one of your recommendations so we'll just it's it's only gonna get worse from here guys <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, so basically, Cicerone program. I'm, I'm I'm happy to have finally got there. I know you're well on your way, you know, uh, towards getting your yeah. own. Uh, the important thing I also want to emphasize: two is points, two two points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. That's all you need, buddy. <laughs> the other thing I want to emphasize to people is that uh, in no way is this a completion of someone's journey in beer. I mean, you get. A lot of people are like, oh, Cicerone, you know everything there is to know about oh, about beer. And, and the, I, there was actually a quote, ironically, from the Cider Book. But uh, it's so the guy who founded the U.S. Association of Cider Makers had, had a quote. And I don't have it directly in front of me, but the basic gist of it was it is possible to know more about something than anybody else and still know nothing about the sub, the entirety of the subject. Yeah. Uh, you can know an enormous amount and still have an enormous amount still to learn. Yeah, and so this is you know just the first step on me continuing my journey through beer, and hopefully you guys will be along the ride to you know share it with me, share it with Ryan, and and keep going and keep learning and you know keep trying some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully, yeah, like I said, I'll get my. I'm trying to, I'm trying to decide. I kind of do want to get it before the GABF, because one of the things they do at the GABF, there's a contest to see how many cicerones you can see on the floor when you're walking around. So I need. So I want to get my pin. I want to. So I, I want to participate. I want to get my pin so people can like check me off as one of the cicerones they've seen walking around the floor. <laughs> Just because. You know why? Not? Yeah, it's it's a feel included. You know, yeah. it's not gonna lie. We're 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 kind of you know arrogant bastards about the whole thing. Pun intended. You know, it's. Uh... Well, my favorite is I had a rep from a brewery that's um, just kind of really getting into North Carolina. He came in. He had his like. Irish hat on with his Cicerone pin on his hat. Make sure you could see it nice and shiny when you're talking to him. <laughs> Good like, Lord, dude. It's like, okay, okay I get it. I get it. it. I'll see you. <laughs> don't worry. And, that, and that's the other thing to emphasize is like, just because someone is not a Cicerone, I don't want to diminish their beer knowledge. Uh, brewers and Cicerones have a weird relationship. Weird relationship. So the, the point I try to make to people is uh, earning your Cicerone indicates a general mastery of beer. Yeah. So you will know more about all subjects than, for example, a brewer might, yeah. except for brewing, yeah. where brewers know way more than you. And and the point isn't for one to argue with the other over who knows more. And you do have plenty of brewers who are Cicerones, plenty of Cicerones who are brewers. Yeah. The point is that, you know, when you're something like a brewer, you're something like a, a sales director, you're something like, you know, any of these other things involved in the beer industry... You, you know, know your segment. You know your yeah. segment super well. Cicerone just indicates a more general mastery, but there's still an enormous amount of granularity. So, so yeah. the important thing to keep in mind is, you know, at the end of the day, just because someone has a Cicerone doesn't always mean they're right. And then at the end of the yeah. day, just because someone has a Cicerone doesn't always mean they're blowing smoke up your ass. They, <laughs> they had to do a lot to get it by the same token. Just yeah. like someone who's a head brewer at a brewery had to do a lot to get there. Yeah. Uh, th- those are things to be respected, both of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's about all I got on that. Uh, so, Ryan, you've had a little bit of a yeah. little bit of a big professional week over the last couple of weeks. Tell me a little about uh, 
Tell me a little about craft beer consulting. Well, uh, probably about... I see this whole process probably started last summer, just in thinking about what I wanted to do next in my career. And sometime and started putting together ideas and sometime around uh, February or March, I kind of decided I wanted to start my own business and I kind of, what did I want to do? And as much as I like love, as much as I love craft, as much craft where I work has given me and beer, I kind of decided I didn't want to do retail or run a or own a restaurant slash bar because right you now. animals are terrible yeah there's it, the amount of work you have to do to run a bar or restaurant is just it, it's you will be there will there are a lot of 14 to 18 hour days let's put it that way it will beat <laughs> you down and it will make you miserable yeah. it, it is an exhaustive yeah. industry and i came to craft straight out of retail so i worked at lowe's as a department manager and again that retail is it's the same kind of thing where you're on your feet and you're in front of people all day long and it's just and you work weird stupid hours and it's exhausting so i didn't want to go especially immediately into retail or running in a bar right after craft so i came up with an idea and i did research to see if there's anybody else who does this and there's really only maybe like two people nationally who you will hear about who do beer consulting one is bump williams and i can't think of what the other one is off the top of my head so it was which like says something about how much new ground yeah. you know this would be breaking yeah. you know and that, which is kind of the scary part is i'm first of all i'm trying to start a business and i'm starting trying to start a business in a industry segment that doesn't actually exist <laughs> as far as i can tell <laughs> So what? So I guess what craft beer consulting is, what it, what I envision it is, is one of the things that prompted me to start with Aaron to do this podcast and to talk about the beer industry as a business is I've noticed, started to notice that a lot of breweries don't, they start off not having a good plan. And sometimes that works out, If especially if you started off early enough in the craft beer cycle like uh, something like a Pisgah who still I don't think has any kind of like actual plan as to what they're doing but they started so oh, early shots fired <laughs> that's shots not really fired. shots fired they're successful I mean it's amazing when I talk to some of the people that work there it's like y'all are just kind of throwing shit at the wall it works it's got great a little bit of that legacy clout yeah, I mean it can be a good thing to yeah. be a legacy yeah so like but you can't there's 6,000 breweries now you can't do that anymore if you're starting a brewery you got to you got to at least have an idea of what <coughs> you have to have an idea of what you're doing and where you're going. You have to create a at least a simple business plan so you know, you know, what your core values are so when you do run into tough times, you don't just start panicking. Yeah, panicking and <laughs> doing crazy stuff. And we've you know. talked about the fact that, you know, craft beer is a business and it's an yeah. increasingly competitive business and a lot of the people who get into starting breweries aren't from a yeah. business background, and that's so the they thing. need that yeah. help. And more than that, you got a lot of uh, bars and restaurants for whom craft beer is becoming an increasingly important segment of their beverage sales. And, and they know they, nothing about the they industry. They know nothing about the beer industry, and being able to provide yeah. them with that knowledge and being able to provide them uh, with the assistance and the consultative services yeah. is important. There is a definite market segment for that. Yeah, because so that's one of those things. Like we said, with the distributors, they have so many beers in their portfolio. You know, if you're if you're a distributor who has Budweiser or 
Miller Coors, when you walk into a bar, that's what you're going to sell because they're basically paying the freight for everything else. Yeah. So, they keep the lights on. Yeah. And so a lot of bars, they got used to, you know, just reps coming in from those distributors going, yeah, you need a keg of this, a keg of this, and a keg of this. And that was it. And now they're starting to get these 32-year-olds coming in looking for, you know. You mean Boston Lager's not selling like it used oh, yeah. to? <laughs> yeah, they're coming in looking for something from Wooden Robot here in Charlotte. And a lot of restaurants, they have they don't know anything about Wooden Robot. They might know old they might I know really old feel Mac. like we've kind of become like inoculated just how awesome the name of Wooden Robot yeah, is. Yeah, it's a great like, name. Yeah, my, I have friends come down from Cincinnati and they're like, yeah. Wooden Robot? Don't they know robots aren't made of wood? I was like, I think that's oh, the point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a they robot have one made and of wood and it works. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and so uh, what I want to do is, you know, help startup, especially startup breweries and smaller breweries either start up and create a business plan from the beginning and help them establish a good footing and a good direction at the start are and also help establish brews who are already established who are you know they found that it's a, little, it's a little bit harder than they thought it would be once they started wait if you just make good beer that's all it takes right Ryan? Well, it's kind of like what we said with travis last oh, week yeah. yeah if you build it they will come but will they come back? Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important distinction. <laughs> yeah. And especially with those breweries starting out fresh. I mean, how you yeah. spend your startup capital is maybe the single most important yeah. question any startup business can make, yeah. and especially with breweries where the uh, the billing cycles and the return on investment can be so out of sync sometimes. Yeah. That startup capital is so important. Yeah. Having somebody who has experience in the industry, who has experience doing consultative services, tell you where to set your priorities <laughs> can make such yeah. a difference. Yep, so I want to do that. And also, like you said, help bars and restaurants, you know, make the transition into the craft beer world. Because, you know, I've been to a few restaurants here in Charlotte, and I look at their beer list, and I'm like, y'all are kind of missing an opportunity. Yeah, you have your established um, regular customers, but even just adding, you know, even just adding... (coughs) Not, nothing crazy. Something like it's adding like Noda or adding a basic, yeah. well-made or Catawba IPA or something. Yeah. that's affordable on a per keg ratio, yeah. and you know it is well known. You don't have to get crazy. Yeah. We're not trying to get you to buy like I don't know a a, a smoked Goza from a <laughs> tiny brewery out of some dude's garage. Probably the dude's garage from earlier <laughs> we were talking about. As yeah. much as I might enjoy it, and as much as I literally drank a smoke goza yesterday, <laughs> it's probably not the best fit for a lot of these places, yeah. but they don't know what is the best fit. Yeah, exactly. And some of them go the opposite route. They pick up too many esoteric products, and they need to be told that they need to rein yeah. it in. You need to have beer. You need to have at least a couple of beers that people recognize on your wall. And you need to know your demographic, <laughs> yeah. too. That, yeah. That's hugely important. If, if you're yeah. you know, running a, a, you know, a, a family sit-down restaurant, your average consumer is in their 60s, and yeah. You know, they you serving you know standard American fare. They're probably not going to be looking for something too radical. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you can't maximize your profits and yeah. maximize your your uh, dollars per cover yeah. by providing craft options that might still be recognizable to them. Yeah, and yeah, you know, so that's the first. That's part of what I want to do. But the second part is also going back to Cicerone is training. And one of the things I want to do, especially after I get my Cicerone certification, but I'll start before then is. I want to set up workshops and training classes for the certified beer server and work with breweries, with tap rooms and bars. And, like, you know, I can, for a slight discount on the test, 
I will be able to, I can take your people through the studying for the exam and within like, I think I did it for our bartenders, like a two or three hour class one day and I can get them set up and they can, they should be able to pass the CBS exam. And that's the thing about the level one Cicerone. Like yeah. it's every level of Cicerone is really an exponential difference. And yeah. that level one is within the reach of just about anyone. I tell people that yeah. all the time. It, it is, it's a cheap exam. It's a thirty-minute yeah. online open book exam. The big problem most people have is there's so much beer information that's hard to disseminate yeah. what you need. And having somebody able to guide your study yeah. can make a huge difference. Yeah. That's what I had. That was the main problem with some of the bartenders at Craft who took it is they got in their own head. Like you said, you get into your own head when you're in the test because you have all this stuff in there. Oh, yeah. And, you and think, I got a huge yeah. head. That's dangerous. <laughs> and you think they're trying to trick you. They're actually not trying to trick you. The, the question they ask is the question they're asking. They're not yeah, this isn't a test to see like that. Like they win nothing by having you not pass the test. Yeah, like they, exactly. Yeah, like, like they're not trying to trick you. This is just a test of your knowledge. So yeah. if you got the knowledge, and I, you probably do, yeah. just recall it. it yeah. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a trick question. I promise yeah. you. And that's kind of what I want to do. Is my uh, I have well, Leah has this idea that we will create over time. We will create this campus like atmosphere where we'll have uh, where, where you'll study for the CBS, but then there'll also be like a bottle shop. Dude, this is going to be the drunkest campus of any school ever. <laughs> I cannot wait. Oh, yeah. There would be like a bottle <laughs> shop where you train people on how to do retail. Then that'd be like a small brew house, like a three, five barrel brew house where you like people who <laughs> they think they're interested in brewing. Just, all right, here. Go at it. See yeah. what happens. Don't blow the place up, but here. Man, if you manage to blow the place up making <laughs> beer, you have really screwed up. You you probably should never attempt again. You're, dude, it's not for you. Like, period. It is not for you. Yeah. Well, you've seen how simple the kitchen is at Craft. Oh, yeah. There are people, we, there are some bartenders who are like, yeah, you can't come in here. <laughs> no. You'll find a way to, you'll find a way to destroy stuff. Yes. That's, yeah, there, yeah, there has never been a piece of technology that somebody is not dumb enough to blow up. Uh, so, yeah, so that's I love my wife to death, but we met each other because she kept screwing up the uh, self-checkout registers at the grocery store I was working at. <laughs> she says it was on purpose, but I've known her for a decade now. It was not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> love you, baby. <laughs> yeah, uh, so where can they find uh, Craft Beer Consulting? Uh, it is The website is craftconsulting.beer. I cannot believe no one has taken it. Yeah, I was right? shocked that, when I popped up. It's like, craftconsulting.beer is available? Sure. I'll go ahead and pay the money for that. There's going to be some little old lady who doesn't know anything about the internet and goes on there looking for yarn. I guarantee it. I heard it was craft consulting. Yes. <laughs> Dot beer. Yeah. And Dot beer. if you go to the website, it's the front page is pretty much set, but everything else is still a work in progress. I will be adding a way to pay to take the workshops in the next week, and there will be a video telling you more about what craft consulting craft beer consulting does going up in the next couple of weeks too i will not be in this video because um this is this will be the first iteration of it let's just put it that way there'll be a lot <laughs> of cool photos for yeah. this video and it's i've found a uh, program from adobe called adobe sparks that allows you to create take pick basically allows you to create super powerpoints they're videos but they're That's awesome yeah it's pretty cool and, so. and I want to make it clear to you guys at home, too, that, like, uh, educating the populace on beer and kind of spreading the love and the knowledge of beer is something that Ryan's been about for a while now. I mean, 
I, I know that I rarely shut up on this podcast, <laughs> but this was Ryan's baby. He was the one who approached me about wanting to do it. I mean, the guy is a wealth of knowledge and information, and you know, having someone like that who's willing to share that and really encouraging other people to kind of take those steps in their own journey through beers is fantastic, especially in a professional setting. Oh, thank you for that, and yeah, yeah I'm hoping yeah, don't, don't yeah. make it savvy. <laughs> I'm hoping that. I'm hoping this will go well enough over the next few months that I will, you will not see me on the other side of the bar at craft, hopefully by the end of sometime in 2000, sometime in 2019 is my goal. So hopefully I'll just in, hopefully this will be full time. I'm hoping working towards that by the end of the year. Awesome. Yeah. Which of course I'm going to be spending some, a lot of money on other things between now and probably December. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. yeah. let me just say I went to Diamonds Direct this weekend. Ooh, and the seats keep getting dropped. Yeah. Let's see how we're going to see how well people can put the uh, <laughs> put the pieces together. If they're not able to figure it out by now, there's a much bigger issue. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this isn't for you. Just stop. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, using that big old brain with uh, big old brain for beer and that beer education, uh, what do you got as far as recommendations today? Uh, my recommendation, going back to Wooden Robot, is they just put out a vanilla brown ale. It's pretty good, and I had it at King's Kitchen with my plate of vegetables. Their food is so good. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's a really good beer, really good food, and yeah, this vanilla brown. It's kind of like, all right, the beer that has basically made Wooden Robot as big as it is is called Good Morning Vietnam it is a it's a coffee vanilla blonde. yeah coffee vanilla blonde and just it's, it's a, delicious it's delicious but just a little tidbit they detest that beer oh they hate it <laughs> uh, so the head brewer of Wooden Robot to give you guys some uh, background might be the most educated brewer oh, in God, Charlotte yes. the, the guy the guy is just so chem- chemistry minded I mean yeah. well educated the guy is a freaking genius and absolute like alchemist when it comes to beer. The base beer for Good Morning Vietnam is trash. Now I make the argument all the time that you know uh, most IPA based beers are trash until you add the hops. So it's, I, I don't see that as a negative. But God, he hates making that thing. Yes, he <laughs> and does. It's by far their most popular beer. Yeah, yeah. And so they came up. I hadn't had a chance to talk to him, but so they came up with a vanilla brown, which is I guess just a way to keep the train rolling on that style that flavor profile and you know it's a it's a good solid lighter more more english style brown with a little like hints of vanilla in it and it's really good i enjoyed it a lot and it's actually we just put it on tap is it just yesterday. called vanilla brown? Uh, no, because I know like, they did that uh, coffee vanilla porter that they called Good Night Vietnam, which yeah, was the like most genius naming. The Evolver. Diet. No, that's the name of this is the Evolver. The Evolver. Yes, I guess they're saying. That sounds very intimidating. Yeah, I guess yeah, they're yeah. saying the our <laughs> the our taste of the vanilla is evolving to gotcha. be brown. Yeah. Okay, I see what they're going there. I see what they got, Dan. I see you. Yeah, I see you, yeah. Fetty. I know that wasn't your idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Shots fired at the brew staff of Wooden Robot. Love you guys. <laughs> All right. So my beer recommendation today. I got a beer and a cider recommendation. Cool. I, th- I think I'm going to try doing those as I'm kind of making this yeah. journey through cider as well. Um, so my beer recommendation today is the from another legacy brewery, West Coast Legacy Brewery. It's kind of gotten forgot about, unfortunately, because they just consistently turn out absolutely amazing beer. It's the North Coast. Old Rasputin. Old Rasputin. Okay, so so real talk. I'm not using it as my recommendation today, but uh, Bourbon Barrel Age Old Rasputin 20. 
was maybe the best beer I had all last year. That beer was just uh, Old Rasputin itself has kind of gotten left behind by some of the other big Imperial so Stouts. Good. It is. It's a very it's a classic OG Imperial Stout. But in the modern era, there are other ones that have kind yeah. of surpassed it. The Bourbon Barrel Age version, though, oh my god, it's so good. But anyways, getting back on track. <laughs> The uh, Cranberry Quince Berliner Weiss. A lot of people aren't aware of their Berliner Weiss series that they do. Um, they It's a Berliner Weiss and a bomber. You almost never see that used as a format. Um, they've done a few iterations, all with various adjuncts, but their Cranberry Quince one is just absolutely spectacular. If people don't know what Quince is, it's a relative of the apple. Yeah. Uh, a little more tart flavor. Uh, it is just such a good beer, perfectly balanced. It's not over tart, and it's not like Cranberry and Quince can both have a tendency to overpower everything and they still manage to ba- balance it well with the acidity from the Berliner Weiss into something that's extraordinary clean uh, has a hint of that kind of fall flavor which uh, if you're in a place that has a relatively cool spring you're still in that kind of perfect temperature yeah. for it and there's not a whole lot of Berliner Weisses that kind of work for that kind of that kind of weather yeah. so yeah, usually like summery yeah, yeah usually yeah beers, usually yeah. a middle of summer poolside beer but yeah i was so impressed with it i wound up getting it just on a whim i uh, had no expectations for it going in and absolutely adored it so i definitely recommend you people try it out it's only like seven eight bucks for a bomber okay. that's not bad at all yeah uh aside from that cider recommendation we're gonna go with the blue bard from noble ciders yeah uh, we just had that up yeah, they're up in the uh, the Asheville area. Uh, if you guys haven't tried Noble Ciders, they, they are just spectacular. Almost yeah. across the board, almost everything they make is really good. Um, they tend to make traditional American ciders that are usually like semi-sweet or semi-dry, yeah. uh, but they tend to use some lovely adjuncts, a lot of fruits and uh, even some herbs to kind of balance it out, round it out, and even for the drier ones, still give it a sense of fullness. Uh, the Blue Bard is a, it's blueberry, honey, and rosemary. Yeah. And, and those are all three things that can be real hard to balance. Also, two of the three things are uh, my wife's least favorite things in beer. She hates blueberry and honey yeah. in beer. Uh, but it is just very well balanced. The rosemary just makes everything, it gives that nice herbal note and makes the entire thing just kind of elevated and really kind of opens up your nose for everything else. It, it just spectacular. Definitely worth looking up. Yeah. All right. How about a non beer recommendation, my friend? I'm going to recommend Kendrick Lamar, Ooh. the newly minted Pulitzer Prize winning Kendrick Ooh. Lamar. Yeah, yeah this, this one needed to happen. <laughs> yeah. And like, so like last, he, if you haven't heard, he won the Pulitzer Prize for music two days ago for his album, Damn, literally like a year from the time the album was released to the time <laughs> this announcement came out. It's literally 364 days, I think. <laughs> But this album That's a happy anniversary thing. Yeah, right this there. album did not win Record of the Year or Album of the Year at the Grammys. But this is a nice consolation prize. I would say <laughs> in a lot of ways this is a, a, much, a yeah. much bigger prize to yeah, win, especially is, for a hip hop artist. Yeah, That's this is a big deal. Of. The only in the music category, classical and up until this win in the music category, classical and jazz are the only two music forms that have won. And jazz has only won and jazz didn't win until 96, I think, was which when Wynton Marsalis won. And he was also the first African-American to win a Pulitzer in music. <laughs> which that, that is obscene, especially and, given jazz's history in America. Yeah. That is just well, unbelievable. A little bit on that. Duke Ellington actually won it one year, but the overall committee for the Pulitzer said, no, we can't give it to a jazz musician. 
in the 60s. This happened, I think, in like 66. I, I wonder what else was going on that yeah. might have influenced that decision in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, yeah. And, and you know, I've said for a while now, like Kendrick Lamar, uh, even though his, stylistically he's radically different, he reminds me kind of, uh, of a lot of Tupac's early work where he, yeah. he's a storyteller, first and yeah. foremost. He's That's a lot more poetic yeah. than Tupac was because Tupac yeah. was very uh, – uh, like Tupac was very much about telling the story in some of the plainest words possible. Like, yeah, he, he was a very explicit speaker. He he spoke yeah. exactly what he saw and exactly what he thought. Kendrick does elements of that, but he also wraps it up in just true poetic language. Yeah. Uh, and he brings in elements of funk, elements of R and B. I mean, just pr- basically the entire history of African American music yeah. and Amer- uh, like African American music over the last hundred years gets wrapped up in some of his stuff. Uh, it, the guy is absolutely fantastic yeah. and probably the most important hip hop artist yeah. out there right now. Yeah, like you said, you can like when you listen to his music, you can hear the history of West Coast rap from what Dre did with all the R and B and the funk and throwing that and adding that into rap. And then he like then yeah, he has all this wonderful poetry. And let me see if I can find the citation for it right quick. And honestly, like uh, yeah, I just love the fact he's bringing funk back. That, yeah. that is a style of music. I'll be honest, the older I get, the more like some of these like really random musical genres <laughs> I get into, as you're about to find out in a second. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to yeah. take a lo- hard yeah, left turn when real, we get to his. real yeah. hard left. Actually, not as much as you'd imagine. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I absolutely adore funk music, and it's he's really kind of renewed interest in it, which is wonderful. And the other great thing is when you listen to his albums, you can tell they are very well just produced and well thought out in what he's doing when in each and everything he does in his albums. They're track all, after track yeah. after track. And, and when you get stuff like, I mean, King, King Kunta is just – the catchiest song ever. <laughs> oh, yeah, by the way, the whole and he he is the producer of the Black Panther soundtrack. Since we haven't mentioned that yet today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wakanda forever. All right, this is the citation from the Pulitzer. Damn by Kendrick Lamar. Recording released on April 14th, 2017, a virtuosic song collection unified by its vernacular authenticity and rhythmic dynamism that offers affecting vignettes capturing the complexity of modern African American life. Ooh. Ooh. When have you ever heard someone talk about a rap album like that? I, I, well, that pretty much this that one time. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. And it, it only took about what forty years for hip hop yeah. to be taken seriously as a musical genre. Yeah, I mean, I'm, that, I'm sure it's still still people who. Oh, I even absolutely after this know that. Will, yeah, yeah, you still run into the raps, not music people, and it's become a lot less. And, yeah. and you know, part of the issue is so much mainstream rap right now specifically is terrible yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah. terrible but there's so many good independent artists out there doing great things and you do see these peaks of hope whether it's kendrick whether it's j cole who are, who are doing yeah. these fantastic things on the side uh kind of keeping it going uh so my uh my recommendation number recommendation today is also music based so tying into kendrick lamar i'm going to recommend somebody who he's actually done a collaboration with for anybody who's making fun of me uh go ahead and bite me it's taylor swift I don't care who makes fun of me. Uh, over the last year, I've really gone from uh, her being a guilty pleasure of mine to just, I, I like her music. I'm not yeah. even going to pretend. Her last album was badass. Uh, it, it had good energy to it. I really think she's kind of solved the pop music problem recently. And the fact that she's able to, to have that kind of mainstream presence and just kind of flaunt to people that she doesn't really care what you think. Uh, she knows all the memes associated with her. She knows that her early stuff was terrible and she she's who she is. I, yeah. I have an odd amount of respect for her and I will jam out to, you know, <laughs> look what you made me do with the best of them. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I'm proud of it. Uh, probably the only Taylor Swift I've ever really listened to is Ryan Adams doing 1989 last year. 
Okay, okay. Yeah, listen, listen to her most re- recent album. Uh, I forget what the exact name of it is off the top of my head, but it could probably be translated to "fuck you, everybody." Uh, <laughs> whole thing is basically her just saying that she understands what everybody in the media says about her, and she just really doesn't care. It, yeah. it, it's spectacular. Uh, it's one of the best kind of just shove off kind of uh, uh, albums I've really heard. I. I I have a weird sort of love of her. It's her. Her music is awesome. Like, yeah. Go ahead and send me your hate mail whenever you feel like it, guys. Yeah, I'll let you stay out on that limb by yourself. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling. Oh, you don't know Tay Tay? You about to know Tay Tay? Hey, The Rock loves Taylor Swift, so you can eat it. <laughs> all right, guys. So that's about all we had for you today. We appreciate you uh, joining Ryan and I on this uh, journey through beer. Uh, like I said, next week I'll be out, but he'll be uh, interviewing Ellie McRae alongside Leah. So definitely make sure you guys tune in. Should be a great show. Yep. Yeah, one yep. way or the other. Uh, yep. Bottom up, guys. Cheers. Sláinte.